would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. If you're not sure where that is, uh, it's easy to find today. It's the last book in the Bible. And today we're looking at the beginning of chapter 14, kind of in the middle of Revelation. Revelation 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 today. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. This is John speaking. He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. Help us to have a new understanding of this new song. And I pray, Father, that at the end of our time of looking at these verses, you would help us to be filled with joy to join our voices in the singing of this new song of the gospel of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't you wish that sometimes you could close your eyes for a moment, open your eyes, and see everything from God's perspective? Where you could just see things from the perspective of heaven. There's a story something like that in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 6. There we find that the people of God, Israel, were at war with Syria and the king of Syria. And the Syrian king found out that the reason why the people of Israel had been defeating them over and over again was because God had given one of his prophets, the prophet Elisha, a particular ability to know what the king of Syria was planning to do, what he was talking about, what his plans were. And then Israel was able to defeat Syria over and over again. Well, the king of Syria found out that this is what was happening. And so he made a plan to go and to capture Elisha. He found out that he was in the city of Dothan. And so the king of Syria sent, we're told, a great army that included horses and chariots. And in the cover of darkness at night, they surrounded the city of Dothan, surrounding Elisha. We read that sometime early that morning, one of Elisha's servants woke up and he looked out and he saw this ring of horses and chariots, this great army of the king of Syria that had circled the city of Dothan. And he was greatly afraid. So he went and he woke up Elisha. And he said, with fear in his eyes and fear in his voice, our doom is coming. We have been surrounded by the people of Syria, these horses, these chariots. 
Elisha got up. We're not given a lot of details, but I can imagine, you know, kind of took his time. He woke up a little bit. And then he looked at his servant, and we're told that he told his servant to calm down. Relax. He said, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, we're not given a lot of details of what the servant did at that point, but I can only imagine that he must have looked at Elisha and thought he was nuts. He looks outside and he sees his circumstances, which are dire This great army, these horses, these chariots are circling the city. There's no hope. There's no help. And here the prophet of God, Elisha, is telling him to be quiet and to calm down. And Elisha says, I'm going to go pray. And when he goes to pray, he prays specifically that God would open the eyes of his servant. So that the servant could see things from God's perspective. He prays, the servant opens his eyes, and when he does, he's given the ability to see things from God's perspective. The mountain that is towering above the city of Dothan, he sees on the mountain that it's filled with the armies of the Lord, horses and chariots of fire that greatly outnumber the army of the king of Syria. And once again, Israel is saved. Now, don't you wish that sometimes you could just close your eyes for a minute and open them and you would see things from heaven's perspective? So often we look at our circumstances of life and we look at the world events that are taking out taking a place around us and we can only see them from earth's perspective. And as a result, it's easy to become filled with fear and anxiety, confusion, Even anger, maybe even cause us to doubt, is God care about us? Is God at work in the midst of these circumstances? But what if we could see things from God's perspective and not just from our own? A couple of weeks ago, we began a transition in the book of Revelation to the second half of the book. In the last two weeks, we've been looking at chapters 12 and 13. And, and this, the second half of the book, as it begins in chapters 12 and 13, begins to peel back the curtain of heaven and give us a glimpse of what's happening on the cosmic battlefield, if you will. The, the spiritual battlefield that we don't always get to see. And we've seen some pretty scary things. We've read about the red dragon, who is Satan. When he was unable to devour God's son, which he wanted to do, he launched a fierce and horrific attack on God's people. We read in chapter 13 last week about how the devil, the the great dragon, raised up these two beasts, the beast of the sea, uh, that represented various earthly kingdoms and countries that are raised up to persecute God's people and to cause suffering for them. And the beast of the land, which makes use of a false gospel to trick and to tempt and to enslave people, putting their hope in a false gospel. And there are more dangerous and serious details that are coming in the chapters ahead as we see the battle of the red dragon against the people of God. And all of this is taking place between the advents, between the incarnation of Jesus and his second coming. And God knew as he was giving these details to his people for the first time, to the people that got this letter in the first century, 
that it could be discouraging. It could be overwhelming to see just glimpses of this wonderful and this massive spiritual battle that's taking place behind the scenes. And he knew that his people would need to be getting a glimpse of the reality from heaven's perspective. That they might be filled with hope and strength and a desire and an ability to persevere to the end in loving and faithful obedience. And so, after chapters 12 and 13, and before he launches into some more of the details, he stops and he gives John this vision in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. And this vision that he gives them is helping the people that were reading this for the first time and for us to open our eyes and to see things from God's perspective. And the more that we see and understand and believe this vision, the more that we will be equipped and able to live with hope and strength in the midst of what are difficult circumstances often, perhaps suffering or even persecution in this life, while we wait for the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, I want us to see three things from this vision that John gets as he gets the heavenly perspective of what's happening. The first is uh, the identity of who this lamb is. The second, uh, where the lamb is, his location. And thirdly, who is with the lamb? So first of all, who is this lamb? What is his identity? Well, if you look in verse 1, John doesn't actually tell us. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. That's all he tells us. It's just the lamb. And we have to remind ourselves that this was actually a letter that was being written to seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. Brothers and sisters in Christ who were dealing with persecution and suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire. And... God knew and John knew that if this letter would fall into the wrong hands as it was being transported uh, from church to church, that the people of God could be even in a greater way persecuted by the Roman Empire. So as we've been seeing over these chapters that leading up to today, uh, the, the, the book of Revelation is, has, lots of, has lots of symbols and lots of code words and the lamb here is one of those code words. If you were here a few Sundays ago, uh, then you got to see a video update from some of our friends, uh, uh, Sean and Heather. And you know that they use code words sometimes so that uh, the, if uh, those devices, the, the, the video or letters that they send, if they ever fell into the wrong hands, that they wouldn't be persecuted in a greater way. And it's the same thing that's happening here. John is not telling us who the lamb is, at least not here. But this is not the first time that we've read John talk about a lamb. Back in chapter 5, we read about this lamb. And he was more specific in giving us details in chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. He says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
who is the Lamb. And John even got a more clear picture than that even. In his Gospel of John, we read in chapter 1 that he observed John the Baptist. And John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching him and John the Baptist yelled out, Behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb that we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 14 is none other than Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain. Now we need to appreciate the stark contrast that we're getting here between chapters 12 and 13 and chapter 14. Chapters 12 and 13 gave us these images of this red dragon, the beast of the sea, the beast of the land. And they are described with horrific details. Even the one that's described to be like a lamb speaks like a dragon, is deceptive. And what we're given in these pictures in chapters 12 and 13 are these beings or these symbols of pure evil. And then we come to chapter 14, verse 1, and John says, But I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb. Jesus here being pictured as a lamb. And it seems, perhaps, even like a weak lamb. He doesn't give us a lot of details about this lamb. Most lambs we know are very docile, cuddly even perhaps. But John does give us some more details about this lamb as we continue looking. Notice what he tells us about where this lamb is located. Where is he? We read in verse 1, I I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb. Now where's that? Where is Mount Zion? There's only one other reference in the whole New Testament to Mount Zion. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. But we're told there that Mount Zion is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's also mentioned in the Old Testament in Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, a psalm that points forward to Jesus. God says in Psalm 2 that he has set his anointed one on Zion, his holy hill. So when we come back to Revelation 14 and we're told that the, that the Lamb is, is on Mount Zion, where is He? He is in the heavenly Jerusalem. He is in heaven itself. That's where this Lamb is. I had to chuckle a few couple years ago. I think I shared this with you when it actually took place. A couple years ago, some archaeologists announced a discovery that they had of what they believed to be the actual tomb that Jesus had been buried in. Now, how they knew it was that tomb, I'm not sure. It was, it was a tomb that they found underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, in Jerusalem. And the article, the, the reporters, the, the, the archaeologists uh, noted that when the stone slab was moved away from the tomb, they were surprised that they didn't find any body inside. But if it's Jesus' tomb, of course there was no body inside. We know as God's people that Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. On the third day, he rose from the tomb, from the grave, and eventually ascended back to the right hand of the Father in heaven, where he is today at this very moment on Mount Zion, awaiting his return. And what else does John tell us? Not only about where he is, but what he is doing. The lamb that he saw was on Mount Zion, standing. That's what he says in verse 1. This word that is used here for stood, it's a very unusual Greek word. I know in the English it doesn't come out as clearly, but in the Greek it would leap off the page for you. It's a perfect active participle. 
It's an unusual construction in the Greek. And it's often used to talk about something that transcends time. Something that is past, something that is present, and something that is continuous. In other words, what John is seeing here is the lamb that has been, always will be, standing on Mount Zion in heaven. Standing. Standing in heaven, no doubt, is a posture of authority and power and action. So what he is seeing is that the lamb has had, does have, and always will have authority and power and ability to act on behalf of his people. Do you see the point that he's trying to get to the first people, uh, the people that read this for the first time in the first century and to all of God's people even here today? The people that were reading this for the first time were hurting people. They were suffering people. They were being persecuted. They were going through trials. Perhaps they were dealing with doubts. Where is God? Has he forgotten us? Does he care about us? Is he powerless to help Overcome with fear and anxiety. And John says, I know where Jesus is. I see Jesus. In contrast to the dragon and the beasts, here is this gentle and gracious lamb with all the power and the authority and the ability to act from heaven to preserve and to secure and to establish his people no matter what they're going through. It's almost as if John is saying, you need to look at your perspective. You need to look at your circumstances. You need to look at what's going on in your life from the perspective of heaven. And when you do that and you see the lamb standing in the heavenly realms, do not fear. Do not lose hope, but persevere to the end. Because you know that the end is secure and sure. Now, if that's not if that as if that's not enough. John also sees something else. He sees who's with the lamb. The lamb has some people with him. He has some friends with him. Uh, Look at how they're described. In verse 1, we're told that he looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Who are these that are gathered with the lamb? How are they described? Well, they're described as being numbered. They are 144,000. Now, some actually take that number literally. believe that it was a literal 144,000 people. Uh, One book in the 1970, The Late Great Planet Earth, written by Hal Lindsey, is one of the books that propounds that. It was a 1970 bestseller. It sold more than 10 million copies. At one time, it was called the number one nonfiction bestseller of the decade. And in that book, Hal Lindsey says that the 144,000 were a literal 144,000 people who would be like Billy Graham type people, evangelists, kind of a, a heavenly special force that would be sent out during the last days to preach the gospel. Now, that might seem exciting for some. It might help sell some books, but I don't think there's evidence of that from this text. We've seen this number before. Back in chapter 7, we saw this number, 144,000, and we talked about how it's a symbolic number, as so many of the numbers in Revelation are. John is being given a number to represent something or someone. And we talked back when we were looking at chapter 7 and the first example of the 144,000, that it's a symbolic number for the entirety of God's people. The number 12 throughout church history is often used as a number to signify or symbolize God's people, the church, 
There are 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. There are 12 apostles in the New Testament. And you take 12 times 12 times 1,000, which is the number of perfection, of absolute perfection. And you get this symbolic number of all of God's people throughout history. The total number of people for whom Christ has died and purchased their lives. And where are they? They are with the Lamb in heaven. They are numbered. They are counted. Each one is known and accounted for. The number didn't change from chapter 7 to chapter 14. How else are they described? They're numbered, but how else are they described? At the end of verse 1, we read that they're also secured. They have the Lamb's name and His Father's name written on their foreheads at the end of verse 1. That's to put it in contrast, if you were here last week, to those unbelievers who are owned by the dragon and the beasts that have the mark of ownership of the beast on them. Here we're getting the contrast. Those who are God's people have God's name and the name of the Lamb that is symbolically written on them, meaning they are owned by God. They have been secured by God Himself. They are protected. They belong to Him. He has put His name on them. It's as if He's saying, they are mine. They're described as being numbered, as secured, and also notice they're described as being redeemed. At the end of verse 3, we read that this 144,000 are those who had been redeemed from the earth. At the end of verse 4, we read again, they had been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. What does it mean to be redeemed? It's a word that shows up often in the scriptures. It means to be bought with a price. If you're one of the 144,000, if you're one of God's people, then you've been bought with a price. And the price was the life of the Lamb. He gave His life to purchase you, to pay the debt that you owed with God in full. God's people don't buy themselves with their own good works or giftedness or wealth. They have been redeemed, it says. It's something that's been done to them and for them. It's been something that's been done by the Lamb as He gave His life as a ransom for many. And also, it not only redeemed, but He says that they are the first fruits for God and for the Lamb. It reminds us of that Old Testament practice of people as they would go into the field and harvest their crops, they were to give the first portion of the harvest to the Lord. It was a symbolic gesture. The entire harvest belonged to God. He's clear about that throughout His Word. But they were to do a symbolic gesture of giving the first fruits to the Lord for His use in recognition that He was the owner and the sovereign controller of the entirety of their harvest. It all belonged to the Lord. It was a way of acknowledging His gracious and sovereign ownership and provision. Kind of like the tithe serves. All of our Gifts, all of our money, all of our wealth is the Lord's, but He asks us to give Him the first fruits of it in recognition that He is sovereignly in control of all of it. This is how these people are described. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are in Christ, if you are one of God's people, then this is who you are. You have been numbered and you are known and you are accounted for. You have been secured and protected and named. You have been redeemed as the first fruits. For God and for the Lamb. And so, how should you respond? If this is who you are, how should it change how you live? Well, John actually gets a little bit of that. 
in light of all of these wonderful truths about who these people are, about the Lamb and these 144,000, in this incredible vision, how should they act? Well, the first thing that we get is at the beginning of verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. That's a controversial verse. There's lots of different discussion about what it means. Lots of different commentators disagree. I don't think it's talking about literal celibacy, which would certainly contradict so many other places in the Scriptures. I think, again, it's a symbolic gesture. What's being described here are people who are pursuing spiritual purity. They are committing themselves wholeheartedly to their Savior. They are giving their lives in service to Him. It's in contrast to what we're going to read next week in chapter 14, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And in chapter 17 and 18, we're going to read about Babylon the prostitute. And in contrast to the world that lives in spiritual impurity toward God, those who are who have been numbered and secured and redeemed and are the first fruits are to commit themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord, to be loyal and single-minded in their commitment to Him. So what that means is that our relationship with Jesus must come first. It comes before your relationship with your spouse. It comes before your career. It comes before your wealth. And any time that we put any of those things, our spouses, our careers, our wealth, or anything else, as being more important than our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are not being wholeheartedly committed to Him. We're not living like who we are. There's a second way that these people, God's people, are to be living. It's at the end of verse 4. Notice these people not only commit themselves wholeheartedly, but they follow obediently. That's what it says. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are so committed, they are so dedicated to Jesus... That they will follow Him wherever He leads them, no matter where that goes, no matter what difficulty or uncomfortable aspect that He leads us into. In other words, our circumstances of our life don't dictate the status of our commitment to our relationship and our willingness to follow our Savior. We are to follow the Lord's leading even when we're unsure where it's going and even sometimes into difficult circumstances. If the Lord calls you to a life of singleness, maybe for a short period of time or maybe for a long season, you follow him where he leads. If you're enduring a difficult marriage, possibly for a long season, you follow Jesus where he leads you and guides you and directs you. If he gives you opportunities to deny yourself, to die to yourself... And to put God's people and God's church and God's kingdom first, then you follow the Lamb wherever He takes you. It's like John was telling us, or Jesus was telling us through John chapter 10. We go wherever our good shepherd leads. We know His voice. We trust Him. So we follow wherever He goes. That's part of what God's people are to do. They commit themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord and they follow Him wherever He goes. There's another 
aspect of how we live out our lives. It's in verse 5. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. There's no lie in their mouth. Now, it doesn't just mean that they don't lie. I think that's obviously part of what it means. But the, the Greek wording of the sentence here has a little bit of a different understanding. Greg Beale, in his fantastic commentary on the book of Revelation, says, when he comes to this phrase, it's not merely talking about general truthfulness, but integrity in our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, especially when we're under pressure. So the sense of what we're being told here, that they live as there's no lie in their mouth and that they are blameless. The sense is, is that if we have a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we live genuinely in that profession and that we do it all the time, everywhere, even when it's uncomfortable to do so. So when we're at work, we live genuinely in our profession of faith in Christ. When we're at school, when we're at the gym. When we're driving our cars by ourselves, when we're on vacation, when we're disciplining our kids, every single aspect of our lives is to be lived out genuinely. And particularly so when we're around people that don't know us or don't know us well and wouldn't hold us accountable to our profession of faith. We are to live genuinely. And then lastly, one last thing that God's people are to be doing is in verses 2 and 3, they are to be singing robustly. Now, where do I get that from? Well, look again at verses 2 and 3. John says, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Here's... Here is this new song that is being sung. And how is it being sung? It's being sung with powerful, loud, unified, and distinctive voices. And what is it they're singing? It's a new song. And that's all that he tells us here. But it's not the first time we've heard about this new song. Again, back in chapter 5. We read that when the Lamb of God, the one who took the scroll... And when he took the scroll, we read in chapter 5 that the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb and they sang a new song. And here's what they sang. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's the new song. What is the new song? It is the gospel of grace. It is an understanding that God's people deserve to have death, but have been ransomed, they have been redeemed by the Lamb, by Jesus Christ as He shed His blood on the cross to purchase them, to ransom them, to redeem them, to pay the debt that they owed. He makes us His own. He puts His seal upon us. He puts His name on us. People from every tribe and language and people and nation. And He makes us to be kings and priests to serve God and to reign in His kingdom forever. This is the new song that God's people are to be singing robustly. 
So what does that mean to sing this song robustly? Well, it may mean that you need to learn the verses. And I don't mean the actual verses that are listed here, although it would be great to memorize those verses and to sing those back to the Lord. But metaphorically speaking about learning the gospel, some of you need to do that for the first time. Of, of learning the gospel, what the gospel is, the good news of the gospel of grace. To learn about this Lamb of God that laid down His life to pay for the sins of His people. Some of you need to, to, to learn those verses for the thousandth time. As we dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the, into the wonders of God's grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just us on our own learning this wonderful new song of the gospel of grace. We also need to learn how to sing it with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we fellowship together, as we sharpen one another, as we are in community with one another. We encourage one another with the gospel of grace. It also means we need to learn how to sing it more than just on Sunday mornings. It's something that we need to be singing in our hearts in our lives, every single moment of every single day. I mentioned uh, during the congregational meeting that we had a presbytery meeting this past week. It was in South Dakota, in Watertown, South Dakota, uh, about an hour and a half north of Sioux Falls. And I had to drive out on Thursday. If you remember last week, uh, the weather came in the early part of the week. Uh, Thursday, it wasn't too bad. Uh, the trucks had been out, and I was on Interstate 90. And I would say for the most part, the roads were mostly clear. Uh, but they were wet. And as I'm driving on 90, going the speed limits, pretty close, and I'm looking not only at my speed, but I'm looking down at the temperature with these wet roads, just below freezing. 27 degrees, 30 degrees, 32 degrees, 28 degrees. And what I found myself is one of those driving experiences where you, you, you realize you're gripping the steering wheel really tight and your, your shoulders are hunched up and you're all stressed out. And the reason why was because I had to be very watchful on the road. They were mostly clear of the snow, but every once in a while there would be a patch of ice. And you would know because if you didn't see it, your steering wheel would go like this. And when you're going 70 miles an hour or in North Dakota, 80 miles an hour, that gets your attention. And what I was realizing was I was having to focus intentionally with everything that was in me on the road so that I could look for the signs of the ice. Why? Well, because life was at stake. Brothers and sisters in Christ, did you get a glimpse of the reality of this world from heaven's perspective this morning from Revelation 14? It takes sometimes everything that you are to stay focused and intent on what's in front of us. To see our reality not just from our own circumstances of life or the world events, but to see it from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective. He gave this vision of heaven's perspective to the Christians in the first century because he knew that they needed it. And he knows that we do too. In the midst of our fighting and leaning against our sin, of dealing with our difficult life circumstances, of the suffering and possibly even the persecution that we have to face in this world, we must persevere. And we need to be reminded that what we see in front of us is not the full picture 
there is so much more that's going on. There's more to reality. And to the degree that we take in heaven's perspective and see things from the Lord's point of view, to that same degree, we will be filled with hope and strength and we will commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. We'll follow our Savior wherever He leads us. We'll live genuinely as His people and we'll sing robustly of His grace. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to the Lord's Supper now, I pray that you would fill our hearts with this wonderful new song of the gospel. Not only as we have seen it in your word, but as we remember it through this means of grace, we pray that you would fill us with all hope and joy, that we would be sent out to live like who we are as your people this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. From the world's perspective, what we're doing here is foolish. It's foolishness. Thinking about the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was given over in His death on the cross 2,000 years ago, that's, that's foolishness to the world. But it's not foolishness from heaven's perspective. Because Jesus rose from the grave, He ascended to heaven where He stands even now as our great Advocate. From heaven's perspective, there is real spiritual power in this table as a means of grace. It's not in itself. It's not in the elements. It's certainly not in the one who is serving it to you. It's not even because of the faith, uh, the strength of your faith of those who would receive it in themselves. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit uh, who's at work in those who come in faith uh, to eat and to drink. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're trusting in Him, and you know that His body and His blood was shed and given for you, and you've put your faith in Him, and you've professed that faith here at Trinity or another church that believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that the Gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, then as the trays come around to you, eat and drink Be reminded of the wonderful truths that these point us to and also be encouraged that as we come in faith, even a weak faith, but a genuine faith, as we come in faith, the Holy Spirit is nourishing us spiritually and strengthening us so that we can go out and live like who we are. Let's pause and thank Him for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for this means of grace. We recognize that what we're doing here is foolishness in the eyes of the world. But we know, Father, that you use it as a great blessing to those who come with the eyes of faith. So we do pray that you would be at work through your spirit, taking what we're doing, reminding us of the wonderful new song of the gospel of grace that we sing, and also spiritually nourishing us as we eat and drink. Would you do this for your glory and for the building up of your people? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.